Welcome to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Join us every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio for a look at the life, deeds, and words of Yeshua Messiah and his followers. From the Torah-centric Hebraic perspective, they were originally lived and written in. Today's program is about Matthew chapter 4 and 5. How can we resist temptation? What does Messiah's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 teach us about the Torah? And what was he really saying about marriage? Stay tuned to the end of this program to find out. Now, here's Eliyahu ben David on Matthew chapter 4. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient Shalom, friends. It's great to have you with us once again. You know, as we go through the Gospels, this is what we find. There's so much here that is so useful to us. And one thing I'm seeing in this lesson is it's warning us about temptation. I put together a few questions about temptation based on this lesson that I thought we might take a look at. For instance, one thing that comes to mind, Messiah was baptized and then he was immediately led into the wilderness to be tempted. That's really interesting. Before he did anything, before he did any miracles, before he started preaching, before he did anything, he was immediately led off into the wilderness to be tempted at the beginning of his ministry. Why was that? Well, because everything that's worthwhile that we do in the kingdom is going to have to be tested before it's ready. So, if Yahweh calls you to do something, expect the first thing that's going to happen is the enemy is going to come in against you. And it never fails. I see this happen all the time. Because if he can, he can defeat you right there by turning you away from what Yahweh's given you to do. He doesn't have to then fight you over this long battle, right? Because he's just turned you away. And that's what he wants to do right at the beginning. And for you, it's your opportunity to show whether or not you are fully committed to doing Yahweh's will. So it's got to happen right at the beginning. It happens other times too. But it always happens right at the beginning 
when you first take up the will of Yahweh for your life. So that goes into the next question. Does that pattern continue with Messiah's Talmudim? And it absolutely does. Unfortunately, with us, we don't always come out as well as Messiah did. Sometimes we're fooled. You know, when the enemy throws stuff at us, perhaps reasons why we should not go ahead or just wait a little while or whatever it is, sometimes, you know, we get turned aside. And if that happens, we really miss out on doing Yahweh's will. So this is why Matthew chapter 4 is cluing us into this so we can avoid that happening to us. You know, each time Messiah responded to the devil's temptation with a scripture. Why did he do that? Well, he did that because he's setting an example for us. And you know what? What happens a lot of times when people get misled by the enemy? You see, the enemy raises objections, raises doubts based on your feelings, right? He tries to hook in to your feelings, tries to make you feel afraid, tries to hook into pride, hook into greed. He'll try whatever he can find to try and get you, but he has to find something in you that he can tap into. So if he comes against you that way and you respond from your emotions, then the chances are pretty high that he's going to find something within you that he can use to cause you to doubt, to cause you to turn away from what Messiah is calling you to do. But if when he comes against you, instead of relying on how you feel, you rely on the scriptures, you'll beat the enemy every time. If you do just what Messiah did, and you think about what do the scriptures say about the situation, and then you give the answer from the scriptures, that will keep you right on track. And you know, this is what we need to do. The book of Proverbs tells us that. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Messiah is a perfect example of what that verse is about in this situation. And there's no time that doing that is more important than when the enemy is challenging us for the route that we've taken that Messiah has set us into. Well, here's another thing that's kind of interesting. The very first verse of Matthew 4. Yeshua was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
does Elohim actually do that? <laughs> Is he actually going to lead a servant of his up to the devil to be tempted by the devil? I think you have to say yes, don't you? That's what he did with Messiah. And why not right at the beginning? Because you know what? It's inevitable, right? That devil is always around looking for an opportunity. Why not face him off right at the beginning? So, yes, the Spirit led Yeshua into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And as I mentioned before, this is a pattern that we see happens a lot with people when they first take up a call from Messiah, that they are tempted. And the devil wants to deflect them away from the course that has been put before them. But the question is, does Elohim tempt believers? Is the Spirit leading Messiah into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil the same thing as Elohim tempting Messiah? And of course, the answer is no. Why then does Elohim do this? Why does he allow his servants to be tempted by the devil? Well, you know, it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. There's basically a challenge put forth back then by the enemy. And essentially, Messiah said at that time, go and do your worst. And we're going to do our best. There's going to be this promised seed. And then let's see how it all works out in the end. And he will crush you, crush your head. Yeah, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. So that's a prophecy. But you know what? You know who that depends on <laughs> in a certain way? It depends on Yahweh's people. You know, that statement at the very beginning to the serpent, is actually a statement of confidence in Yahweh's people. Isn't that an amazing thing? And he's given us free will so that we can choose, right? So there's two sides here. You know, there's the devil and there's Yeshua. And we get to decide every day which side we want to follow. So, yeah, the devil has his opportunities to tempt us. But we have everything we need to resist him. We have the word that we can feed on. We have the example of Messiah. We have the Holy Spirit anointing like Messiah did. We have everything we need to overcome the devil. We just have to do it. We just have to make the decision each time that we're going to follow Messiah 
and not give in to the temptations of the enemy. You know, on this subject of temptation, some verses I really like are found in the book of James, the first chapter. Verse 12 said, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which Adonai promises to those who love him. Isn't that a great thing to think about? There's a reward when we overcome the enemy, when we successfully endure temptation. And that comes to us as a sign of approval from our Father. What a wonderful feeling that is. <laughs> you know, when the enemy has come against you and you've stood in faith against the enemy and you overcome and then you feel that approval from your Father. That's such an awesome thing to experience. And, of course, we do it because we love Him, just like the verse says. Verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by Elohim. For Elohim can't be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. It's the enemy that tempts us. Yahweh never tempts us to evil. He allows us to be tempted by the tempter. Because we get to choose. And by choosing the right path, we get all the blessings. You see, it's not all negative being tempted by the devil. Not if you overcome. If you overcome, it's a step up, right? It's really helping to form your character. And, of course, when you defeat the enemy, many times there are new levels that are open to you by Messiah because now you have proved yourself in that area. And so new things open up to you. So Yahweh wouldn't want to prevent that from happening because this is an opportunity for overcomers. And you have to say it kind of weeds out the hangers-on, doesn't it? People who are just hangers-on, people who don't have a full commitment, they're the ones that are weeded out. Now, sometimes people are tempted because of ignorance. They make a mistake. That can happen to good people. That can happen to disciples. And when it does, they turn to Yahweh and they say, I'm sorry. Help me to do better. And he does. It doesn't have to be the end when you've made a mistake. But it feels a whole lot better if you don't make a mistake. It feels a whole lot better if you overcome the enemy. Verse 14 tells us where temptation comes from. It says, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and is enticed. See, that's what the devil was trying to do. To Messiah. He was trying to find something in him where he could entice him. 
Oh, you're hungry. Well, turn these stones into bread. See, he thought he could use that hunger against Messiah. And this is how he does it. He tries to find something in you, some desire in you to entice you to accept his will instead of the Father's will. And if he succeeds at that and you give in in that area, verse 15 tells us what happens next. Then the lust or the desire, when it has conceived, bears sin. So you see, the temptation is almost like a seed that he plants inside of us. If it finds some fertile soil there, some desire. Now, this might be for something evil, but it's not always something evil. You know, in good people, sometimes the enemy will actually entice you through something good. And I see this happen. Sometimes people are called on a certain mission. And, you know, they're very idealistic kind of people. So then, all of a sudden, other doors open up. Other opportunities come up that seem more appealing to do good. And many times, doing good is the enemy of doing Yahweh's will. You know, if... Let's say Messiah had chosen the path of building the kingdom in the devil's way instead of choosing the cross. He would have chosen the way that was a lot more comfortable, so in some ways more appealing. But then again, none of us would have been saved. Sometimes the hard way is really the better way. But whether it's a hard way, the easy way, it needs to be Yahweh's way. And not just what we want. And that's what the enemy is always trying to do. Is trying to use something in us. Something that we want to turn us away from what Yahweh wants in our life. So where does temptation really come from? Actually, it comes from us, doesn't it? Our desires. That's why his word is so important to us. That's why we have such a focus here at Zion on knowing his word. You know, one thing I saw in Matthew 4 is that Messiah actually thought in terms of the word, right? Like he's tempted, what comes right up into his mind? <laughs> Immediately. It's the scriptures. Immediately. What the scriptures say comes right up into his mind for that situation. That's how we need to be and how we are when we focus our lives on the scriptures and allow the Spirit to cause that to flow through us. This is really how we can overcome. Well, of course, where all this ends up, it says 
sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And that happens in reality. People really do die because of sin. But it happens in other ways. Like, for instance, what I was talking about earlier. If Messiah is calling you to a particular mission, a particular walk, and the enemy entices you away, then it brings death. It brings death of that mission. And everything that Yahweh was going to do through you in that mission, that's all dying now. There is no fruit there. So this is something for us to think about. I like uh, verse 16. It follows this up. Don't be deceived, my beloved brother. So this is the thing. We have to realize there is an enemy. He does want to deceive us. And we need to be awake to that. We need to be awake to his temptations. We need to respond like Messiah responded and not be deceived. And then we will overcome. Don't go away. Eliyahu will be right back with more from the Gospels right after this. Enjoying this episode of Hebraic Insights in the Gospels? Want to hear more teachings from Eliyahu Ben David? Tune in to our 24-7 internet radio station, Zion Road Messianic Radio. You can catch the latest episodes of Hebraic Insights in the Gospels before they're released as a podcast, learn more about what Zion Ministry teaches from our other programs, and listen to a host of uplifting songs from our independent Messianic music artists. To tune in to our station, go to zion.org. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot O-R-G. Or search for Zion Road Messianic Radio. Again, that's Zion spelled T-S-I-Y-O-N in your favorite internet radio app or station directory. Don't miss the latest episodes. Go to T-S-I-Y-O-N dot O-R-G and check the station's schedule to see what's playing. Welcome back. After learning from Messiah's example how to resist temptation, we turn to his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And now, here's Eliyahu ben David on Matthew chapter 5. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is. And walk in it. We are entitling this whole segment as the Sermon on the Mount, Messiah reveals the heart of the Torah. I believe this is such an important portion of Scripture for every believer and every follower of Yeshua Messiah. You know, it's how we apply the Scriptures that really makes the difference. What we find is when we take the Scriptures seriously, Many times we run into opposition, other people really don't like it, 
Many people think we need to forget about those commandments, but that's done away with, so on. And yet, what we found here as we look into the Sermon on the Mount is that the modern message we so often hear is not what Yeshua Messiah said. There's a major disconnect between what we're hearing from religious sources today and what Messiah shared. You know, what he was talking about, it tells us in Matthew chapter 4, he went about teaching the good news of the kingdom. Earlier it says that's the message that John was teaching. So it began with John. Yeshua took it up, taught it more deeply. And here in the Sermon of the Mount, this is being carried on. It's a kingdom message. It's for those people that want to participate in the kingdom, to be a part of the kingdom. And right away, when we begin to get into Messiah's message, we're not hearing that the commandments are done away with. We're not hearing that it doesn't matter what you do. And yet, in mega churches, you get a very different message. Now, these folks, they claim to be speaking the same message as Yeshua, whom they call Jesus. Take, for instance, Joel Olstein at his church. According to a quote from World Net Daily, he says, God absolutely approves of everyone. This is what he has declared. Many other Christian leaders, teachers, have a similar kind of message. It's based on the idea that God just loves everybody. And it's going even beyond the traditional Christian teaching that as long as you believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter what you do. Now it's no matter who you are, God loves you. And there are some other comments by Joel Olstein and others that seem to suggest that no matter what religion you are or no religion, it doesn't matter, you're going to go to heaven. So different from the message of Yeshua. Why is there such a difference? Matthew 5, 19 and 20. It talks there about the commandments of the Torah. It says, Whoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and teach others to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do and teach them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, does that sound like the commandments 
are done away with or does it matter what you do? Or does that sound like Messiah holds the commandments in high esteem? And then, of course, he says, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, there is no way you'll enter into the kingdom of heaven. That statement must have been so shocking to the people that heard it 2,000 years ago because the Pharisees were the religious dudes, right? Everybody thought of the Pharisees as the most righteous people. Certainly the Pharisees thought of the Pharisees as the most righteous people. To hear you have to be more righteous than a Pharisee, I think the first feeling that listeners might get is, well, I'll never be righteous because I could never do what those guys do. Maybe that's what you think or people you know might think when they read that verse. But really, this verse gives us reason for hope because what it's saying is don't do what they do. Don't do what they call righteous. It's not about being religious. That's not what makes you righteous. What you find in the Sermon of the Mount, we're going to see it as we go on. We're going to see it throughout the whole good news of the kingdom. We're going to see it throughout the Gospels. What Yeshua is trying to tell us is that instead of thinking that we're going to be righteous by focusing on black and white and following a set of rules. Basically, that's how religion does it. That doesn't make you righteous because what that results in is something like the Pharisees, something that is an outward show of righteousness, but inside is not changed. What Messiah is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is hungering and thirsting after real righteousness. Wanting to be changed, to actually become righteous. That's what the message is all about. Actually become righteous from the inside out. You know, the prophets promised that, that there would be a new covenant where the Torah would be written on the heart, meaning a person would actually be changed on the inside, conforming to the Torah. So it wouldn't be some strain trying to keep some kind of religious um, idea of what righteousness is but it would actually be who you became, who you actually were from the inside out, so that just being you is keeping the Torah. And we have an example of that in Messiah himself. That is what he did. He came, and in just being who he was, he lived out the Torah. When he talks about being the light of the world, that's what he's talking about. That you have this light inside yourself. 
the light of Yeshua Messiah. And as you let that light grow, you become the light of the world. And interestingly, Yeshua doesn't think it's humble if you suppress that light so people can't see it. You know, I often hear people saying that. Well, you know, I don't want to be showing off, so I don't tell people the things that I know about the Scriptures and so on. <laughs> that is totally contrary to what Messiah said. Share what you know. Share who you are from within. Be the light of the world. How else are people going to know what it's really all about if you don't do that, if you don't actually let your light shine? And what light is that? Well, that's the living Torah. Yeshua Messiah shining out from inside of you. And you know, an interesting thing happens as we go through the Gospels, as we keep taking in this food from Yeshua, we find that we are changed. I was thinking about this last night in the middle of the night. I was thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. I was thinking about what is so amazing about this. Because, you know, these verses now have been in the Scriptures for a long time. People read this, they just read right through it. They don't really think about what it means. But when Messiah said these things, this was revolutionary. It just turned his world, the world around him in that time, upside down. And I'll tell you the reason. Because when it took a hold of individual people, whether they be demon-possessed, whether they be lunatics or zombies, whatever they were, it changed them. It changed them. And I'll tell you how it changed them. It helped them to discover who they really were. What about you? Do you know who you are? Have you really uncovered the real you? I'll tell you who you are. You are the person you were meant to be in Yeshua Messiah. You have to find that person within yourself. The person you were meant to be in Yeshua Messiah. And you have to get rid of all the rest of it. Everything that's not that person has got to go so that your light can shine, so that you can really be who you're meant to be. You can do the things you're meant to do. You see, not works of religion, works of faith that have been planned for you. You can be that person. And you know, that is what we find in the Gospels. That's what we get from Messiah. And as we continue to go through this, 
I want to just encourage everybody, dig deeper to find that, to really receive what Messiah is offering you, to find that core person of who you are in him. And look to him to help you grow up fully into being that person. That really is ultimately what we want to get out of the Sermon of the Mount or Sermon on the Mount and all the rest of this too. So I hope that as we go through, you will just experience the same wonderful experience that I'm talking about. Stay tuned. Eliyahu has more to share in the book of Matthew after this short break. Zvi Nassi was the son of an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. He grew up to make a stunning discovery in Targum Isaiah, authored about 30 BCE by Jonathan Ben-Uziel, whom the Jewish Encyclopedia calls Hillel's most distinguished pupil. Targum Isaiah reveals what Second Temple rabbis taught about the coming Messiah, something very different than the rabbis teach today. Zvi was so impressed with his discovery in Targum Isaiah, he translated Targum Isaiah into English. Read for yourself what Zvi was so excited to discover in the new volume, Zion Edition Targum Isaiah in English with parallel Jewish and Christian texts. Targum Isaiah bridges the gap between the ancient synagogue and the early followers of Yeshua the Nazarene. Discover the stunning discovery of Zvi Nasi. Get your Zion Edition Targum Isaiah at www.tsiyon.org, amazon.com, or other book outlets today. Welcome back. You are listening to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Let's see what else Eliyahu has to share about Matthew chapter 5. Here in Matthew chapter 5, Yeshua touched on marriage. And he talked about not only marriage, but adultery and divorce. Now these are common words to us, so we might think we know what this means. But actually, these words as found in the scripture are very different than the way many people understand these words today. Here's the verses in Matthew chapter 5 that talk about these things. The first passage is Matthew 5, 27 through 28. It says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that everyone who gazes at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. The verse does mention adultery, and we are going to get more information on what that really is in the Torah. The other passage that we find in Matthew chapter 5 on these matters is Matthew 5, 31 through 32. It says, It was also said, whoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorce. But I tell you that whoever puts away his wife, except for the cause of sexual immorality, 
makes her an adulteress. And whoever marries her when she is put away commits adultery. Now, over the years, these particular verses, this saying of Yeshua, has sometimes been bitterly contested and has been used by certain groups in such a way as to put tremendous burdens on some people. And others have seen this as a matter of holiness and express opinions about that. So, what does this really mean? I mean, it talks here about a writing of divorce. What is that? And adultery. Being remarried after being divorced. What is the context of all of this that Yeshua is talking about? Well, what we have to remember is earlier in Matthew chapter 5, Yeshua said that he's explaining the Torah to us, explaining the righteousness of the Torah. So, when he's talking about marriage, adultery, and divorce in these verses in the Sermon on the Mount, he is talking in the context of Torah marriage. And you know, most people don't know much about that. Torah marriage is really different than modern-day marriage. And, in fact, modern-day marriage has co-opted these words, marriage, adultery, divorce, and similar words, given them a brand-new meaning that's different than the original meaning in the Scriptures, and as people accept these new meanings from generation to generation, they get an entirely different idea of what these words actually mean. Now, to give you an example of what I'm talking about, in the summer of 2015, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that same-sex marriage had to be accepted across the entire country. So they call it marriage, people of the same sex being married. Is there anything like that in the Scriptures? Is that within the scope of marriage in the Scriptures? This is an example of how the world takes words that actually come from the Scriptures and then changes the meaning. So when you look at, for instance, this example that I'm giving of same-sex marriage, is that marriage according to the Scriptures? Well, it really isn't because it doesn't fit the biblical definition. So now we have a new thing called marriage that is not really the marriage in the Scriptures in the Torah. So what have you got? Apples and oranges. Well, this is not a brand new thing to happen. This has been happening for a long time so that over time there's been a lot about marriage that has been changed in these definitions. So if we want to understand Torah marriage, which is what Messiah was talking about, 
we want to understand his words, then we have to go back to the Torah and see really what these words mean in the context of the Torah. And that's what we're going to do right now. And we're calling this, as I mentioned, Torah Marriage 101. And here's some thoughts before we dig into this, okay? As we've noted, the Israel marriage system under the Torah is not equivalent to the world's marriage system. So we have a more complex situation if we want to be righteous people. Because many of us got married, or thought we did, under the world's system without really knowing the Torah system. So then as we grow in knowledge, we have to somehow find a way to reconcile the situation because some of us are actually married two different ways. How do you reconcile all that? Well, I'm not going into all the details of that tonight, but I think it's enough just to realize that that's a problem. You know, and if you do realize that, then you come to understand why a lot of believers have a lot of trouble in their marriages. Because it's not a simple thing. And, you know, there's this mixed situation of the world marriage. At the same time, people are trying to keep the commandments. So many times they run into difficulties and problems, not because they're bad people, not because they're not trying to apply the scriptures, but because all of this is very complex, trying to put together two different systems to make it work together. So this is a situation that we're in, in the exile, the remnant. We're out here, you know, we're wanting to be Torah keepers. And yet, within the culture that we grew up in, in this particular matter of marriage and family life, we've been taught completely different things than what is in the Torah. So we've got some of what's in the Torah, and we've got some of our culture, and we've got to figure it all out. The first thing you have to realize about Torah marriage is it's part of a complete system of Torah. In other words, if you pull out certain parts of it, they don't make sense by themselves alone, except as part of a system. And in fact, some of these things are not even possible in the exile. Because some of the things that are part of the Torah system are specifically meant for Israel in the land of Israel. So in the exile, we're not even able to keep some of these provisions in Torah. And there's some things in Torah that seem very strange to us who are used to the world system, never have really seen the Torah system in its completeness. For instance, leveret marriage. You come across that in the Torah, and really a lot of people are scratching their head. What is this all about? We don't understand it because we don't fully understand the full system of Torah. And we have to be careful about that. 
So we have to realize there's some things in the Torah about marriage that simply are impossible while we're in the exile or aren't appropriate while we're in the exile. And this is part of what we have to sort out. We're not going to sort all this stuff out tonight. And since it's Torah Marriage 101, in other words, the basics about it, we're not going to get into all of those kinds of things tonight. But I'm mentioning this because we really need to understand this about the Torah and that our situation in the exile is difficult. In fact, there's a lot of things that are in the Torah that uh, were pretty easy for Israel to do in the land that's very hard for us. How about keeping biblical time? Very easy in the land because it was all geared to biblical time. For us, you know, we got Monday through Sunday, right? We have to deal with a lot of us have to work Monday through Friday. And so it's difficult keeping the biblical time in the exile. Well, whose fault is that? Is that Yahweh's fault that we have these problems? We're living in the exile. Things don't all jive with what's in the Torah. Did he make a mistake somehow? No, it's not his fault. You know whose fault it is? It's our forefathers who rebelled against Yahweh, right? And then they were exiled into the world and assimilated into the world. And this is our situation now. As their descendants, we're left with this mess to try and make sense out of this and find our way back to keeping the Torah. So that's why I have on here, we must do the best we can. We don't always uh, exactly know, and we have to take it step by step as we're led. So let's take a look now at the basics. First, we start with Yahweh. You know, the scriptures tell us that Yahweh is in a relationship with Israel, as Israel being his wife. Now, what is the nature of that relationship? Well, Yahweh is the creator. He's the source of everything, right? He's the father. And he's the Lord and master of his house. Every good thing comes from him. The land of Israel comes from him. And Israel is entitled to that land by covenant with him, keeping the covenant. In that economy, his firstborn son is the heir of all things. That's what the scriptures tell us. And he made a covenant with Israel. And this covenant is bound by Torah cords of love and righteousness. Israel entered into that covenant, making Israel Yahweh's wife as a nation. So Israel is his nation, is his helper, is his wife. Israel is the keeper of his house. 
Israel is given the land, but then it is up to the Israelites to care for it, to care for everything within the land. Israel shares in all that he provides. Israel has an intimate relationship with him and produces fruit for him. Now, we find this in the Torah in a number of ways. For instance, all the first fruits go to him. This is a recognition that everything is from him. It's a recognition of his headship in that relationship. And that really is the model of marriage in the Torah, Yahweh and Israel. So, if we look now at marriage among the people of Israel, look at the pattern. The husband and father is the Lord and master of his house. And his firstborn son, usually, not always, is the heir of everything that's owned. What is the reason for that? It's because every family was given a possession in Israel. It's passed down in the family through the sons. What was the reason for this? The reason for this is so that every family has wealth that continues on from generation to generation to take care of everybody. And so there has to be somebody that's responsible for that, to make that happen. Yahweh set it up so that it's the head of the house. It's the man in that family that has that responsibility over everything. Making everything in his house essentially his possession. But not really, in the sense that it's a family possession that's passed down. Now. For this man to succeed at this, obviously he's going to need a wife, right? Because he's going to need descendants too. He's going to need help in doing all this. So his wife is his helper, his wife and mother to the children, the keeper of his house. She shares in all he provides. She has an intimate relationship with her husband and she produces fruit for him. That's the Torah system. What makes it work? The covenant makes it work. The covenant under Torah that sets out all the boundaries, all the righteous boundaries of this relationship that calls that man and woman to love one another as Yahweh loves Israel to walk in righteousness. You see, people today sometimes look at this system and they say, oh, that's a patriarchal system. That's abusive. And you know what? If it wasn't for the fact of the Torah, I'd agree that it's abusive. We have other systems around the world that are patriarchal. For instance, in Islam which is well-known and noted for its abuse. So that does happen. However, Torah marriage is different. And I'll tell you why. 
because it's based on the righteousness of our Father in heaven. And it assumes that his people will be righteous people who will do the right thing, who will be motivated by love and not just selfishness. It assumes that. Why does it assume that? It assumes that because Yahweh says, you must be holy because I am holy. You see, this whole system is set up to reflect the righteousness of Yahweh and how he deals with Israel. So that every Israelite in their own family will be experiencing the same relationship that Israel is in with Yahweh. Goes right down through. And this was Yahweh's plan to do things this way. So what do we see? We have the Yahweh marriage system. His relationship with his people, Israel. We have the Israel marriage system. The way his people relate to one another in marriage. Under the Torah in Israel. And as we compare them, what we find out is both systems are the same system. This is because Yahweh chose to reflect himself in his relationship with Israel in the midst of Israel through marriage. That's his plan. And I'll tell you something else that so offends people. Yahweh set it up this way so that the family head, the men in the family, would reflect his authority. This system is set up to create great men. That's what it's about. Creating great men. And you know what? It's about women who help to create great men, who are themselves great women. That's what this is all about. Creating a people in the earth who are like Yahweh and his nation, reflecting his glory in the world. There is something bigger than our own interests and what we want. That's how Israel was to think about marriage and their relationship together. It's reflecting the glory of Yahweh. So this system is really a beautiful system and in both cases, this assumes the parties will keep the covenant of love and righteousness with one another. As long as that happens, everything is going to be happy. Everything's going to be good and go along well. Oh, but I know what you're thinking. That's not real life. Right? Yahweh is sinless, and people are sinful. So that cord, that covenantal cord, gets frayed, even gets broken. So how can a system that assumes that people are going to be righteous, are going to be loving, how can that kind of system even exist? in a sinful world. 
Well, because some sinful people inevitably would break the marriage cord, adultery and divorce had to be addressed by the Torah. So while the system assumes that people are going to do the right thing, Yahweh knows there's going to be people that don't. So he addressed that in the Torah. Let's look at some of that. We have the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Now, under the common definition of adultery today, which governs, for instance, in a court of law, adultery is either a man or a woman having sexual relations with a person outside their marriage. That's the common understanding of adultery today. In the Torah, there's a different definition of adultery. It's more complex. The whole thing is broken down in a more complex way. Adultery is the Hebrew word naaf. And it brings out here in one definition that to commit adultery is always with the wife of another person. So I'm not saying that it's okay for people to have casual sexual relations with other people. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, though, that adultery has a specific definition in Scripture, and that is when a man adulterates the marriage of another man by being with that man's wife in a sexual way. Strong's says to commit adultery, woman that breaketh wedlock. In Torah, the definition of adultery always revolves around the sexual faithfulness of the married woman. She commits adultery if she sexually violates her marriage covenant. A man commits adultery if he sexually violates a married woman. It all revolves around the woman. And it's interesting how this uh, reflects the situation of Yahweh in Israel. Because Yahweh is always faithful to the covenant, right? But Israel, not so much. And the problem is very much having to do with the faithfulness of Israel. And so, in the system we're talking about, it's a monandric system, meaning it revolves around the woman. The marriage covenant revolves around the woman. And the definition of adultery in the scriptures, Torah adultery, reflects that truth. Now, don't get me wrong by what I said, because some people will misunderstand me. I'm not saying that women are more bent on sexual unfaithfulness than men are. In case anybody heard that, that's not what I said. Well, moving on here, besides the most common scenario of adultery between a married woman and a man, Leviticus 18 sets forth perverse acts 
that are also rightly included under the definition of adultery if involving a married woman. All of these perverse acts are prohibited for men as well as women. However, they're not necessarily defined as adultery when applied to a man, even though they're wrong and have other terms that apply to them. So these acts only become adultery if they involve a sexual sin involving a married woman because that itself stands as a covenant-breaking sin in itself, regardless of what particular conduct brings us on, creates this adulteration of the marriage. Now that we understand something about what adultery is in Torah marriage, we're going to talk about divorce. When a man takes a woman to be her husband, the word actually means master, owner, as I pointed out earlier, then it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency. And this word actually means nakedness in her. That he shall write her a bill of divorce. This word divorce literally means a severing or cutting of the covenant, really like a cord that is cut. And he will give it in her hand and send her out of his house. Why is it that the man himself can divorce his wife and it's not the state that's in charge of the divorce? Well, this is one of the very big differences between marriage as we know it today and Torah marriage. In Torah marriage, what that is all about is a covenant. And a covenant is when two people make a free will choice to agree to something and put something at stake to back up that choice. So we have the covenant between Yahweh and Israel. We find that in the Torah. And so in Torah marriage, men and women make a decision to enter into a covenant of marriage before Yahweh. So instead of having the state involved, Yahweh is involved. And they must remain of good conscience before him. And should things get to the point where a man's wife is unfaithful to him and he divorces her, he himself writes out the bill of divorce and gives that to her and sends her out of his house. It's his house, like I told you, right? Because of the hereditary possession. So she has to leave his house. Now, practically speaking, 
how marriages were actually covenanted in Israel was with something called a ketubah. And generally what happened was the girl or woman's father, or possibly a brother, would negotiate the covenant, the ketubah actually, possibly with the groom's father, or if the groom is older, perhaps with the groom directly. And in the negotiations for the ketubah, generally what would happen is provisions would be written into the ketubah in case there was a divorce. And the ketubah then might stipulate if in the case of a divorce a woman goes out, she would go out with certain things. And this would all be handled according to a prior agreement in the ketubah. And there was lots of other things that could be in the ketubah. Many of these have been found, by the way, from the first century. So a lot is known about this. A lot is known about this, how this all works. The interesting thing about it, though, is it didn't require the state to do this. This only required people of free will to work these things out between themselves and enter into this covenant. So when a divorce happened, then it would bring into play whatever the provisions were in the ketubah. So when it says here that he sends her out of his house, it doesn't necessarily mean that she's going out, she's got nothing, she's going to starve to death. That's just not allowed in the Torah to happen to anybody. And so no doubt arrangements would have been made in this event. But in any case, when she goes out with that bill of divorce in her hand, it goes on here, it says, when she is departed out of his house, she may go and become another man's. She is not going to be in a situation now where she has to be a spinster for the rest of her life because this happened. Yes, in the case we're looking at, it assumes it's her fault. She's the one that was unfaithful. Even so, once she has that bill of divorce, it means the covenant is cut, severed. And therefore, she is free to remarry. And it's very clear, very clearly stated right here in the Torah. That's how it is in Torah marriage. That's how divorce works in Torah marriage. Here's some of the key words that we discussed as we went through. It's interesting how when it says about her doing something shameful or uses that kind of terminology, the real word is nakedness, and it implies shameful exposure of some kind. It ties back directly to Leviticus chapter 16 where it uses the term uncover nakedness there in Leviticus 18.6 and throughout Leviticus 18. It lays out all these different kinds of sexual sins 
of uncovering nakedness. So to mention nakedness is kind of a shorthand for saying any of this stuff that's in Leviticus chapter 18. If she does any of that stuff, then he could give her a certificate of divorce. And you know what? If you read what some of that stuff is, you'd understand why he would. Because some of this is pretty gross. Why would she do that? Well, Israel, like us today, lived in a world where most of the people in the world did not honor God. And all the surrounding pagan nations did horrible stuff. Just disgusting stuff. And some of the people in Israel, they picked up some of those customs. You know, that happened. And so there had to be a provision for dealing with that. What is a man going to do if that sort of thing is going to now actually infect his wife? Perhaps through her, his children, the rest of the household. There has to be a provision to deal with that. You know, Yahweh himself came to a point where he had to divorce Israel because of her gross unfaithfulness. And nobody can say he was at fault for that. That can happen. So that's indecency. That's what indecency means according to the Torah. It's the things that are listed there in Leviticus that sever the covenant. Whatever it was that she did, when she is given that certificate of divorce, that's all over. In the sense that that marriage is over. And she is free in the eyes of everyone, including the eyes of the community and the eyes of Yahweh, to become another man's wife. So I just am emphasizing this because we're going to get into what Yeshua said, and we're going to want to compare it to what the Torah says here, showing that a woman who has been divorced by her husband is free to remarry. Now, what if things happen in such a way that a woman needs to terminate her marriage covenant? Is the situation this way that the whole thing is in the hands of the man and the woman just has to accept whatever happens to her? That's how a lot of people look at this. This is what they naively think when they read these kinds of verses. But it's because they don't have a knowledge of the rest of the Torah. For instance, look at Exodus 21.10. It says, if the man takes to himself another wife, her food, I believe that's talking about the first wife there when it says her, but either way, her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights, he shall not withhold. So here it's stating certain things, really the minimum, that he owes to his wife according to the covenant. And that is food, clothing, and her conjugal rights. 
it goes on to say this. If he will not do these three things for her, that is, these minimum things, then she may go out free without payment of compensation. So, this is her alternative. These are stated minimum grounds. Now, why these three things? Why these three things? Denial of necessities, even to the point of abandonment, and alienation of affections. Why are these the big things? Well, what are the three big things that women need? Especially in that society where the men really owned everything. Didn't they need the necessities of life guaranteed to them? That is part of the marriage. That's part of the covenant. So abandonment, that's to leave the covenant. That's a man leaving the covenant if he abandons his wife or if he alienates his affections from her. Every woman who enters into a marriage expects to be loved, right? That's part of being a woman. So if a man is going to deny that to his wife, He's breaking the covenant. So let's look at this again. The stated grounds for a woman going out free from a marriage covenant are denial of necessities, abandonment, and alienation of affections. And as I've stated, these are minimum grounds that are being set forth. So if these are the minimum grounds, that assumes and this is a common interpretation of Torah, if these are minimum grounds, then that assumes that even worse treatment of a woman would also be included. So, for instance, something worse would be even stronger grounds for severing the covenant and going out free. So therefore, treatment like physical harm of a woman or threat of physical harm to her or her children and similar unlawful and hateful acts would be included under this provision of Torah. And what is this all about? Well, it is obvious. This is about righteousness. Yahweh does not require a wife to remain locked in a marriage in which she is deliberately neglected or harmed by a hateful husband. By persistently harming his wife, that man has, in effect, divorced his wife, making his wife free to go out from that marriage as an innocent party. Being free, she may lawfully go out of the broken marriage and may lawfully marry another man without being a covenant breaker before Yahweh. Now realize what we're talking about is Torah marriage here. If you got married 
according to marriage under your jurisdiction wherever you live, and you have like a licensed certified marriage where you have allowed the state to be in control of your marriage, it might not work like this. So, you know, just remember, I'm talking about the Torah here, what the Torah says. And if we had this kind of situation, then you have to take into consideration what happens with you with the civil marriage that you have. How do you work these two things out? You know, that's a deeper question, and that would take more time than we have to discuss. But remember, we are continuing to talk about Torah marriage here. It's interesting that this particular rule of a woman who is not accorded the things that she is entitled to in the marriage covenant, that she is free to leave that marriage to remarry, it appears that it's this very same Torah requirement that Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 7, where he talks about women who are married to unbelievers. He says there, if any woman has an unbelieving husband who is satisfied to go on living with her, she's not to leave him. Paul is assuming here that everything is basically okay. The marriage covenant is being honored by the unbeliever, even though he's an unbeliever, and so she's not to leave him. But then in verse 15 it says, But if the unbelieving spouse departs, let him depart. In other words, if the unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, abandons the wife, then the believer should let them go. And then he says, in circumstances like these, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to a life of peace. So it's exactly what we just looked at in the Torah. Now, I would just comment that I've heard Christian teachings saying that a woman like this, where her husband has left her, continues in the marriage and is not able to remarry. That's not what Paul is saying. It's not what the Torah says. So, let's just talk a little bit now about what we've been seeing about Torah marriage. We noted that the two kinds of marriage, Yahweh in Israel and Yahweh's people in Israel, is the same system. We've looked at how adultery in the form of a number of kinds of sexual sins, all revolving around the wife, how that can be a cause to sever the marriage covenant. How there's certain things a wife has a right to expect under the covenant because they are designated by Torah as requirements of the covenant. So how she does have a recourse in the case that those things happen and that she can be free of that marriage. 
Also, we've noted that living in the land under Torah is an intricate part of this system of marriage. And really, in the cultural circumstances of a lot of people, there are tremendous differences under the exile of what people commonly consider marriage and how they behave. Now let's compare Israel marriage to the world's marriage system a little more. In Israel's system, the husband, the father, is the Lord and master of the house. He has headship responsibility before Yahweh. He needs to be engaged in leading that family. That family is not all about just making him happy. He has a big responsibility to take care of the needs of his family. And he has a covenant responsibility with his wife, a covenant based on love and righteousness. And this is what he needs to strive to exemplify. Now, is he going to be perfect? No, but he better be on his knees asking for help from Yahweh because he's going to need it. As for the wife, she's the keeper of his house. She shares in all he provides. She has an intimate relationship with her husband, and she produces fruit for him and his family. In the world, unfortunately, most men have no hereditary possession. And therefore, that leaves the husband in a situation where he's not the source, as Yahweh is the source for Israel. And in many cases, this means he's not really recognized as the head of his family. And really, in the world today, in Western countries, that's considered a passe idea. Instead of having a covenant that he, he and his wife entered into in free will before the righteous requirements of Yahweh, he's got a license. His marriage is certified by the state. That's what makes it effective. So only the state can give him a divorce. And all of this will be according to the laws of the state, not according to the Torah. There may be love and righteousness involved. You know, if these are believers, they may bring the principles of the Torah into their marriage. However, love and righteousness is not required by the state to make a marriage. What we find regarding wives and husbands is today there are no clear roles, even by gender. Two men can get married, two women can get married, and all sorts of other unimaginable things can happen. If they want to, tomorrow the Supreme Court can decide that, you know, marriage to your cat is okay. I mean, the world gets to decide this, and that's what they do. Laws of man govern the world's idea of marriage. It's marriage in name only because it's not the marriage that Yahweh designed. 
It's apples and oranges, folks. Two different things. Even though it's the same word. Don't let that fool you. Torah marriage is not the same as what the world calls marriage. So, we're going to get into now Yeshua's teaching in Matthew chapter 5. As we do, we need to realize that all of Messiah's teachings on marriage and divorce refer to Torah marriage. The world's marriage, as we know it today, didn't even exist at that time when Messiah spoke, so he couldn't possibly be addressing that. And we need to see what people are up against. When you realize that the Torah system is one system, and for us it's a crippled system in the sense that we don't live in the land under the Torah. And on the other hand, you have the world system, which I think we all would admit is all messed up. So two people decide to be married. This is what they've got. Do you think we should be judgmental about people over their marriage problems? Do you think as a believer you have a right to be judging people according to their marriage problems when we've got such a mixed up mess that people are trying to reconcile in order to live together in marriage in this world? So I'm just saying, you know, we need to have some grace for one another and even for ourselves because you know what? Some of us have had troubled marriages. Some of us have been through divorces. Some of us have regrets, okay? That's going to happen to a lot of believers in this world with this kind of a situation. So how do we deal with this? Well, this is an individual matter of conscience guided by Scripture, the Holy Spirit, and the complexities of the individual union which outsiders cannot fully understand or know. So, therefore, each of us has to apply the truth that we see in the Torah and adjust this to whatever worldly marriage situation we're in, and with Yahweh's help, figure out how to sort our way through it. And it's just not the same for every person. And it's not necessarily easy. Now, nothing I'm saying here should be interpreted as saying that I'm in any way minimizing Yahweh's righteous requirements. But I'm just saying we have to look at our real situation in the exile. You know, a lot of times it's because of ignorance that we think we're doing well. And in many cases we're not doing as well as we thought because we just don't know all the facts. So we're trying the best we can, you know, as we go along. And I believe the more we understand how Yahweh thinks, the more we understand His Torah and how it operates within His system, 
the more we can enter into that, the better our lives are going to be. And the less damage we and our families are going to suffer. But for a lot of folks, getting from where they are now to that place I'm talking about is a rocky road. And we need to leave room for people to make their way along, to make progress to a better situation. So here at Zion, we're open to all kinds of people. We're not going to tell you because you were divorced at some point in your life that you can't participate, that somehow you're not as good a believer as somebody else because we're all on the road together here. And I think the facts, as we look at them, show that we all need a lot of grace. Well, here's what Messiah said in Matthew 5, 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorce. Now, here Yeshua is quoting what is being said about divorce. As if that's the righteous thing, if you've given out the writing or the bill of divorce. But notice Yeshua quotes this, leaving out the rest of the quote, leaving out the grounds. What that is suggesting to us is that people back then, and probably most of the religious leaders, and we have a record of that, were saying, well, if you're not happy with your wife, you can write her out a bill of divorce and send her away. In other words, whatever grounds you want. In fact, if she burns the soup, you can send her away. That's what they said. Messiah goes on, but I tell you that whoever puts away his wife, except for the cause of sexual immorality, makes her an adulteress. And whoever marries her when she is put away commits adultery. Well, we saw that in Deuteronomy 24, that there are grounds here. Grounds having to do with sexual unfaithfulness. Those are the grounds on which a man could write out a bill of divorce for his wife. Not just for anything. Not because she burned the soup. Serious grounds of unfaithfulness. Messiah insisted on these grounds, saying, but I tell you that whoever puts away his wife, except for the cause of sexual immorality. He is directly stating what it says in the book of Deuteronomy in the Torah. He is insisting that people who were Torah keepers, because in the first century they claimed to be Torah keepers, that they wouldn't stop with the bill of divorce, but they would understand there had to be cause for that. That's what he's saying. Apparently there were abuses. There were people who wrote out a bill of divorce without cause. That's why he was saying this. That's what's righteous. That's why he was saying this. But then we have this. 
I tell you that whoever puts away his wife, except for the cause of sexual immorality, makes her an adulteress. And whoever marries her when she's put away commits adultery. What does this really mean? The common teaching on this verse is that a person divorced on grounds other than adultery is really still married in the eyes of God to the ex-spouse. So is committing adultery if married again to another person. Is that what Messiah was really saying? That even though she's been divorced by her husband, she still is not free to remarry? That somehow, ethereally, she's still married to him? Messiah was expounding the Torah. We already saw that. And the verses he's talking about in Deuteronomy 24 say when she is departed out of his house, she may go and become another man's. Remarriage of a woman divorced by her husband is expressly allowed by the Torah. Now, if you're a Christian and you think Torah was done away with, then you might think, okay, well now Messiah is giving us another rule. But in the same chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, he says not one daughter tittle can pass away. So can we really take that away where it says when she has departed out of his house, she may go and become another man? Do you think he was actually contradicting the Torah? So, something's wrong there, isn't it? If we would say, put words into his mouth, that that's what he was saying. We also saw in Exodus chapter 21 that there are grounds where if a woman has been abandoned, she can go out free and remarry. So, let's say a man wrongly divorced his wife because she burned the soup or whatever other reason. That amounts to abandonment, doesn't it? He's putting her out of his house without cause. Isn't that abandonment? And according to Exodus 21, if she's abandoned, she may go out free. She may remarry. So here's the conclusion. It can't mean what they say it means. He makes her an adulteress, and whoever marries her when she's put away commits adultery. It can't mean what they say it means, because that would directly contradict the Torah, and we know Messiah couldn't do that. So how can this verse be explained with no contradiction of the Torah? Well, we have another definition of the word make that shows up in different places in Scripture. To make someone something is often a way of saying to make them seem like something they are not. So that's the meaning that I believe applies here. 
this meaning of make in this context is in agreement with Torah in this verse. Let's read it this way. It says, It was also said, Whoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorce. But I tell you that whoever puts away his wife, except for the cause of sexual immorality, makes her seem to be an adulteress. And whoever marries her when she is put away seems to commit adultery. Now this fits the Torah. Since the Torah ground for divorce is sexual immorality, if a man divorces his wife for burning the soup, everyone is going to think he had divorced her because she was sexually unfaithful. And that makes her seem to be an adulteress. Not only that, if any man marries her after that, everyone are, is going to think that he is the man that she was unfaithful with. And that makes him seem to be an adulterer. And it's this effect of false witness that is proof that the lax view of divorce must be wrong. In other words, the man who divorces his wife, except on these grounds, is setting her up to be thought of as an adulteress. And anyone who marries her to be thought of as the person she was adulterous with. And so the effect of that is false witness against his wife, something prohibited by the Torah. So Yeshua is saying this as proof that what he's saying about the Torah, that divorce must be on the grounds of sexual immorality and not on something else, this is his proof that that is the case. That's why he put it this way in the situation. And thus, when we understand what this is about, we understand it is not in any way contradicting what the Torah already tells us about divorce. It is simply requiring people to obey what the Torah says. Just a few thoughts about this. The popular Christian teaching on this puts wrongly divorced people under bondage in which they must stay single or be seen as committing adultery. I find this odd that some Christians who often askew being under the law as being legalistic, those same people all the while have created their own law on divorce based on an ignorant interpretation of Yahweh's words and a lack of knowledge of the Torah. And this Christian law of some is harsher than the Torah. Or what Yeshua said, or what Paul said in their application of the Torah. And you know, this is what happens to people that abandon the Torah. They end up making up other laws that are not righteous, whereas the Torah law is righteous and perfect. 
and leads to freedom, liberty. As James put it, so speak and so do as those who are to be judged by a Torah of freedom. Torah is meant to set us free, not to put us under bondage to stupid doctrines. Torah liberates us. Torah is what Messiah came to teach us. Well, that concludes our discussion on Messiah's words on the Sermon on the Mount. Our meeting went kind of long going into all this about marriage, but I hope you find this helpful in understanding Messiah's words. have been listening to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Further teachings and study materials on various related topics and others can be found at our membership site, Zion Tabernacle. Sign up is free. Just go to zion.net. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot N-E-T. Or click the membership link on the Zion Road website. New programs on the Gospels will be airing every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio. Join us next Shabbat to learn more in the book of Matthew. Shabbat Shalom! Ask for the ancient past.